0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com/give. Good morning. We're coming up, we're just days away from the actual 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And Luther's, those theses, the 95 theses, particularly engaged the issue of the Roman Catholic Church doing something which was called selling indulgences. That's what they're all about. If you take the time to read through them, it's a long document. There's 95, but they all deal with this problem that was going on in the church. Luther was a Roman Catholic priest, but he saw problems in the church, and it had to do with this selling of indulgences. Now, you've maybe heard that term, but what are indulgences? There might be some confusion about this. Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and I say teaches, not taught, but the Roman Catholic Church still teaches That even after your sins are forgiven by God, you still must suffer certain temporal punishments for your sins. Roman Catholicism teaches that you receive forgiveness from eternal punishment when you get baptized, but there's still a price that needs to be paid for the sins that you commit and continue to commit. That price is some kind of quantifiable, measurable punishment that you must endure either in this life or in purgatory before you can actually enter into heaven. This is where indulgences come in. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, an indulgence is, quote, a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, but which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. I'll translate that for you. (laughs) The translation is when a Christian commits sins, he incurs certain measurable punishments due to those sins. And the Roman Catholic Church says that this person, a Christian, when he sins, has three options to deal with those punishments that he owes. One, option one, is to suffer those punishments in some tangible way in this life. Option two is that after he dies, he can suffer in purgatory before entering into paradise. Purgatory is a place of suffering that gets you ready for heaven after you die. Or option three... The Christian can go to the church and acquire a prescription of certain conditions under which you may get your punishment remitted by God. That's an indulgence. The Roman Catholic Church claims to hold the keys to what they call a treasury of merit, which contains all the prayers and good works of Jesus, plus all the prayers and good works of Mary, plus all the prayers and good works of all the saints who have come before and who went above and beyond the call of duty and were so righteous that they had righteousness to spare for some other people too. The Roman Catholic Church claims to have the power to take some of that extra merit in the treasury of merit from Jesus and Mary and the perfect saints and apply it to you if you go through certain motions. It might be saying a particular set prayer or it might be visiting a special place or it might be doing some specific good work. And if you do that thing, there's an indulgence granted to you, a remission of that temporal punishment that you should have paid for your sin. In Luther's time, you could have paid a certain price, a monetary amount, put it into the box, so that either your sins could be taken care of, your temporal punishments, or a dead relative in purgatory could make their way closer to heaven by you giving some money. Now, if you asked a Roman Catholic today about what was going on at the time of the Reformation, they will probably acknowledge that there was a problem going on. They'll say, yeah, it probably wasn't a good thing that members of the clergy were extorting the poor through the selling of indulgences. But indulgences themselves, those are still very much a part of the Roman Catholic system of righteousness. Righteousness. But the problem Luther saw was not just with the selling of indulgences. The problem was the very idea of indulgences themselves. Whether or not they're sold for money, here's what indulgences do. They make our sin, our guilt before God, quantifiable and measurable. And that's a problem. Now, most evangelicals, when we look at the idea of indulgences and the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, I think we probably think, oh, gross, how awful that they would make people feel so guilty by making such a big deal out of sin. You know, thank goodness the Reformers came along and helped us realize that we don't have to feel so guilty because we know that God is gracious and merciful and actually forgives sin, right? That's the point of the Reformation, But here's the thing, the problem that Luther saw with indulgences was not that they maximized our guilt before God. The problem was not that indulgences made too big a deal about sin. The problem was actually that indulgences minimized sin. Indulgences put a quantifiable price on sin. They put measurable bounds on the debt I owe to God. Indulgences teach me that when when I sin, I owe God a finite quantifiable debt that I can do something to pay off that debt to God. I can trust in my works, in my righteousness to merit remission of sins from God. In fact, righteousness is so achievable through the efforts of man. Some saints have lived such a perfect and complete life that their own, they've paid for their own temporal punishments and they have extra to share with me. The problem with indulgences is that they make light of sin by teaching us to trust in our own righteousness. Indulgences actually denigrate the holiness of God and exalt the goodness of man and his ability to please God through his own works. That was the danger that Luther saw. But this is not what God teaches us about the way of salvation. This morning we're gonna be in Romans chapter three, so if you have a Bible, please open there. It'll also be up on the screen. We're going to start in verse 10 of Romans 3, which says this There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the Apostle Paul talking about all men. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now today in our commemoration of the Protestant Reformation, we come to perhaps the central doctrine of that Reformation, which is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The fancy Latin for this is sola fide, Or only faith, or faith alone. But we have to say at the outset that these two words, faith alone, mean very little without explaining what we mean by them. Faith alone, what do you mean by faith? Faith in what? Faith alone, as opposed to what? Where does faith come from, anyways? There's a helpful way to beef up this phrase which tells us a lot more about what we mean and what we're talking about and it provides an outline for our preaching today and it highlights some of the things in this passage and it's this, I'm gonna expand this statement through faith alone, okay? And it's an outline for the sermon and it says, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. We're talking about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not primarily a mental exercise of theological precision. James Buchanan, a theologian uh, from the 1800s, says this. He says, the best preparation for the study of this doctrine is neither great intellectual ability nor much scholastic learning but a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. I'm not here to deliver a theological lecture to you today. And if I only succeed in engaging your mind and I don't engage your heart and your conscience and make you aware of your actual condition as a sinner in the sight of God, I will have failed. Please pray to that end that our hearts would be engaged this morning, not just our minds. Because though it is important to be able to articulate and talk about what justification by faith is and what it means, it's worth saying here at the beginning that being able to explain and articulate the doctrine of justification is not what justifies you in God's sight. Let me say that again. Being able to explain and articulate the doctrine of justification is not what justifies you in God's sight. My goal isn't to give you a perfect formula for defining the doctrine of justification by faith alone. My goal is to point you to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Because even if you have the perfect theological formula memorized, the doctrine of justification will mean nothing to you. In fact, it will be damnation to you unless you are aware of your sin and of your need to be justified in God's sight. Today, many preachers are robbing their people of the knowledge of sin. It's our temptation as preachers of the gospel to avoid bringing the law to bear on the conscience of our hearers because it's just plain nasty work. We want to skip to the hope and the relief and the joy and the peace with God. That part's nice, but we don't want to press into the reality of our condemnation before God. Many preachers talk about the law of God but few preach the law of God. But as we delve into what it means to be justified in God's sight, my first task is to show you that the absolute last place you should look for hope and peace and joy is within yourself. And so allow me for just a moment not just to read Romans three to you, but to preach it to you. There is none righteous, not even you. You do not understand. You do not seek for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none who does good, not even you. Your throat is an open grave. With your tongues you keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under your lips. You whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in your paths. In the path of peace, you have not known. There is no fear of God before your eyes. Do you believe those things to be true of you? Have you ever acknowledged that those statements of condemnation are true of you? If not, then the gospel message of hope that follows these statements is not for you either. God says there is nothing inherent within you that is deserving of his favor and his kindness. Yes, you were made in God's image, but there's a problem. You have corrupted and defiled and shattered that image such that you have no place in his kingdom. By nature, you are a child of wrath, full of wrath and cursing and bitterness and sitting under the wrath of God. You were born an enemy of God. God the judge has declared you guilty, condemned, sentenced to death. The good news is there is a way to be justified. But what do we even mean when we say justified? Well, very simply, justification means man's acceptance with God or his being regarded and treated as righteous in his sight. Okay, I'm gonna say that one again too. Justification means man's acceptance with God or his being regarded and treated as righteous in his sight, in God's sight. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It is to to be declared righteous by God, to be favored by him and to have peace with him. It is freedom from condemnation. And this justification is a legal reality. It's a legal declaration by God, the judge. And this declaration by the judge carries with it the full weight and authority of the law. Now, think about a courtroom. Imagine you've got an innocent man who is falsely accused and prosecuted for a crime that he did not commit. But that this innocent man is brought to trial. He's brought to trial, evidence is presented. And in the end, the judge makes a declaration that the man on trial is not guilty. Now, is that man innocent before or after the judge made that declaration? You can answer. (laughs) I heard an after. Before, right? (laughs) Well, he was innocent But the declaration of the judge carries with it the full weight and protection of the law itself, such that that man is shielded from further accusation. Legally speaking, what ultimately matters to that man is the judge's verdict, not guilty. You can imagine a similar situation with a guilty man. If that man committed a crime, he is guilty, right? But it's only when the judge declares him to be guilty that he becomes subject to the penalties of the law. Legally speaking, what ultimately matters is the judge's verdict. To be justified in God's sight is to be declared, regarded, and treated as righteous in a complete, absolute sense in regard to his law. It is to be declared not guilty in God's court. But it's also more than that. Justification means not just being not guilty, but it also means being righteous. When we stand justified before God, he considers us to be righteous in relation to his law as if we had fulfilled everything in it to the fullest and earned the blessings and rewards of his law which amount to eternal life. John 3.16 shows us both of these realities. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The removal of the curse and a grant of the blessing, of the reward of the law. To be justified in God's sight is not simply to have a clean slate. It's not that we get to retake a test, which we failed the first time. No, to be justified is to have our failure removed and to have it replaced with a perfect score. And this verdict from God the judge, this declaration of righteousness is final. It's a sure thing and it's a completed action. And this is another significant difference between the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification and the biblical doctrine of justification. For the Roman Catholic, justification is a process. According to Roman Catholicism, sanctification, or the Christian's gradual growth in actual holiness, by definition is a part of justification, making justification itself a gradual process. But Romans 4.25-5.1 says he, that is Christ, was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God justifies you, he once and for all changes your identity. He declares you to be his son and not a child of the devil. To be a slave of righteousness and not a slave of sin. To be his friend and not his enemy. And once God the judge has made that declaration, nothing can change it. Just like no one can change the fact that my son is my son, no one can change the fact that God has regarded and treated you as righteous through his son, Jesus Christ. Justification is man's acceptance with God or his being regarded and treated as righteous in his sight. That's what we mean when we say justification. But how is this justification granted to us? Well, it's by grace alone. We see this in verse 23 and 24 of our passage in Romans 3. It says, for all have sinned and fall short. Can you put it up there? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. To be justified by grace is to be justified as a gift. That's what it means. God does not owe you justification. It's something he freely, by his own choice, decides to give. Notice how closely tied those two realities are in 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace. For the sinner, which is all, for the sinner there is no access to righteousness apart from God's free grace, apart from the gift of God. Adam forfeited our right to peace with God when he rebelled against God and we daily add to Adam's guilt. Don't forget the charge against us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is who we are. We are dead in sin, which means that we are entirely dependent on God by his own will to bring about our justification. And the primary way that God makes it clear that justification is accomplished by his grace, by his own free will, and not by the effort of man, is the fact that justification happens through something called faith. Through faith alone. Romans 4.16 says this. For this reason, righteousness is credited by faith so that it may be in accordance with grace. I'm gonna read that again. For this reason, righteousness is credited by faith. God's telling us why righteousness is by faith and it's for this reason, so that it may be in accordance with grace. By definition, for justification to be By grace is for it to be by faith and by no other thing, no other means. In order that God might demonstrate that we are justified by his grace, by his power, by his will, he made faith and not works the means of granting us righteousness and justification in his sight. Faith itself is not even some work that we perform in order to earn God's favor. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that our faith doesn't even come from us. It is a gift from God. This is what Ephesians 2 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice this connection always between the grace of God and faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is simply belief or trust in the gracious promises of God. Faith means humbly laying aside any and every attempt to justify yourself in God's sight by your own righteousness and trusting entirely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we have many ways that we seek to justify ourselves. And all of these come from a desire to boast in ourselves rather than boasting in God and in Christ. We've been talking about Roman Catholicism and the teaching of Roman Catholicism that justification is achieved through baptism. Yeah, faith and baptism is so enticing. Isn't it alluring to think that you can have assurance of your salvation by the concrete fact that you got baptized? If only it were that easy. But what is baptism? It's a work. It's something that you do. It is a necessary aspect of Christian obedience, for sure, and you must do it, but it does not justify you. It is a response to God's grace, not a means of acquiring his favor and his forgiveness. And to place baptism in the position of justifying us is to boast in our works. Over and over again, Scripture sets justification by faith over and against justification by works. They're in opposition to each other. Read from our passage again, if you can jump to Romans 3:20, 20, verse 20. "By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Galatians 2.16 says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Seeing a pattern here? Second Timothy 1 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus. But we are full of self-righteousness and we are always looking for ways to justify ourselves. Jesus rebuked the Jews of his day for their self-righteousness and their desire to justify themselves. Paul rebuked the Galatian Christians for putting confidence in the works of the flesh. Luther and Calvin rebuked the leaders of the church for devising fleshly means of acquiring salvation. Today, how is it that we seek to justify ourselves? How do you go, where do you go to convince yourself that you have peace with God? What tangible things that you have accomplished or can accomplish or think you can accomplish are you tempted to trust in rather than trusting in Christ? When you're made aware of your sin, where do you run for comfort? Do you run to Jesus Christ and the forgiveness found in his blood? or do you run to your own works to comfort you do you think any of these following things can grant you peace with god offer up some suggestions here do you think giving a certain amount of money to the church you think going to the right church is what justifies you in god's sight maybe going to church every week maybe participating in the lord's supper Maybe having lots of children. maybe disciplining your children the right way. Does eating the right food justify you in God's sight? Is feeding the right food to your children? Does managing your money well and prudently justify you in God's sight? Is sending your kids to the right school? Or being friends with the right people on Facebook? Maybe it's associating with faithful pastors. Maybe it's coming from a godly cultural heritage or growing up in a Christian family or being American or being white or being black or maybe being a woman is what justifies you or maybe being a man. For some of us maybe even a little more subtle and sophisticated in our in our self-justification. Do you think you're justified by possessing a right understanding of your sin? Maybe you're justified by your discernment. Do you seek to soothe your guilty conscience by being able to accurately identify and point out other people's sins? Or the sins of our culture? Or the sins of other churches? Is that what justifies you in God's sight? Or maybe you feel like you're justified when you're able to explain and articulate the doctrine of justification. Many of these things are important aspects of the Christian life. Some of them are not. But none of them justify you in God's sight. These works of ours must never become the ground or the foundation of our peace with God. Because as soon as our obedience becomes the foundation of our peace with God, we lose hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we set ourselves self righteously against his grace. Now, if you're really spiritual, but still self-righteous. You may even be tempted to put your faith in faith. That sounds weird. What do I mean by that? Well, you may fall into thinking that it's your faith itself that is actually pleasing to God, that earns you points in God's eyes. That's actually not the case. Faith itself, as such, is not even what justifies you. There's a really helpful book by Horatius Bonner, that we sell in the office over there, called Peace and Holiness. He walks through some of these things. And I'm going to read an extended passage from that because it's so helpful. So I want you to tune in and listen, okay? And he says this about faith. He says, Faith then is the link, the one link between the sinner and the sin bearer. It's not faith as a work or exercise of our minds which must be properly performed in order to qualify or fit us for pardon. It is not faith as a religious duty which must be gone through according to certain rules in order to induce Christ to give us the benefits of his work. It is faith simply as a receiver of the divine record concerning the Son of God. It is not faith considered as the source of holiness as containing in itself the seed of all spiritual excellence and good works. It is faith alone recognizing simply the completeness of the great sacrifice for sin and the trueness of the Father's testimony to that completeness. It is not faith as a piece of money or a thing of merit, but faith taking God at his word and giving him credit for speaking the honest truth when he declares that Christ died for the ungodly and that the life which that death contains for sinners is to be had without money and without price. It goes on. God connects salvation with believing, trusting, knowing, remembering. Yet the salvation is not in our act of believing, trusting, knowing, or remembering. It is in the thing or person believed on, trusted, known, remembered. Nor is salvation given as a reward for believing and knowing. The things believed and known are our salvation nor are we saved or comforted by thinking about our act of believing or ascertaining that it possesses all the proper ingredients and qualities which would induce God to approve of it and of us because of it. This would be making faith a meritorious or at least a qualifying work and then grace would be no more grace. And here's my favorite part. It gives a little illustration. It says, I get light by using my eyes, not by thinking about my use of them, nor by a scientific analysis of their component parts. So I get peace by and in believing, not by thinking about my faith or trying to prove to myself how well I have performed the believing act. We might as well extract water from the desert sands as peace from our own act of faith. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ will do everything for us. Believing in our faith or trusting in our trust will do nothing Thus faith is the bond between us and the Son of God. Faith is nothing save as it lays hold of Christ. Our faith must be in Jesus Christ. I think this is part of Jesus' point when he tells us that faith the size of a mustard seed is sufficient to move mountains. When he says that, it's a rebuke to our self-righteousness, sorry, our self-righteous confidence in ourselves. But it's also an encouragement to the humble and discouraged that it's not even about the strength or size of your faith, how easy it is to despair when you look even at that, when you try to turn faith into a work which earns God's favor. No, faith does not earn you God's favor. Jesus Christ possesses God's favor. And those who put their faith in him, even faith the size of a mustard seed, barely visible, unshakably possess God's favor and blessing. Faith is just the means by which we lay hold of the perfect thing. When you doubt the strength of your faith, don't torment yourself trying to determine whether or not your faith is perfect enough to earn God's favor. Look to Jesus Christ, the sinless one who bore our sins on the cross, who paid the full price for our sin, who grants us perfect access to God's fellowship. There's this wonderful little section of the communion liturgy that we do every Sunday. You'll recognize it when I read it. It's my favorite part of the communion liturgy. And after giving the scriptural basis for coming to the table and giving warnings and all of those things, it says this, and although you feel that you do not have perfect faith and fail to serve God as you ought, yet if by God's grace you are sincerely sorry for your sins and infirmities and earnestly desire to fight against unbelief and keep all his commandments, then be assured that your remaining imperfections do not prevent you from being received of God in mercy he himself making you worthy partakers of his heavenly food. For we do not, this is, it continues, for we do not come to this table as righteous in ourselves, but we come seeking our life in Christ, acknowledging that we live in the midst of death. Let us then look upon this sacrament as a remedy for those who are sick and consider that the worthiness our Lord requires of us is only that we be truly sorry for our sins and find our joy and salvation in him. United with him who is holy. By faith, even Christ Jesus our Lord, we are accepted of the Father and invited to partake of these holy things which are for holy persons. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. He is our hope, our trust, our confidence, our belief. We just sang this, right? Our faith must not be in anything else, not in our own goodness, not in the goodness of any particular good work that we have done, not in being a Jew or in being white or some other race, not in having grown up in the church, not in being outwardly associated with the church. Our faith is in Jesus Christ himself, in his death which atones for our sins, in the propitiation which is in his blood. Our faith is in his perfect obedience to the father which grants us access to eternal life and fellowship with God. This is what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Christ. All of those things are necessary. Justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. In this justification, reality never goes away. It's the constant foundation of hope and peace with God for the Christian. That's why we sang, my hope is built on nothing less earlier. We don't graduate beyond this reality of justification. It continues to be our foundation for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And it's important that we remember that because once we're justified, it's so very easy to begin to hope in ourselves. That's what the Galatians fell into. Paul rebukes them in Galatians 3. He says, "'You foolish Galatians! "'Who has bewitched you before whose eyes "'Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? "'This is the only thing I want to find out from you. "'Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law "'or by hearing with faith? "'Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, "'are you now being perfected by the flesh? "'Did you suffer so many things in vain, "'if indeed it was in vain?' So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Once we are justified in God's sight, we begin a life of obedience to him. But it's not a life of earning our way into heaven by the works of the flesh. It is a life of living into the reality of what God says is already true of us. We are his sons. We are slaves of righteousness. We are the friends of God, not because of our works or because we have earned that standing, but through faith simply in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's let's pray together.